Morning, everyone. A couple of things before I get started. First of all, excellent song choice today from uh, Mr. Dumbia. Uh, uh, you might wonder why in, in his name we say this is God's only plan. This is God's only plan. God has only ever had one what I might call the promise plan of salvation that gets progressively revealed throughout the scriptures and results in thousands of tongues. Now, the word tongues in the old ways actually means language, thousands of languages, people from all tribes, nations and languages praising God in the throne room of heaven. Uh, we are children of the promise, that one big promise plan of salvation if we've come to know Jesus. It's really good to reinforce biblical truths and to teach and admonish one another in song and this morning is an excellent example of that happening. Second thing, if I limp and look a bit wincy every now and then, it's because I played some paintball at a Bucks Day yesterday and uh, it was from uh, actually Oliver uh, Humphreys who you guys probably would have seen preach a couple of weeks ago. I'm sort of training some young lay preachers and over the next couple of years and that's a thing I want to get going so um, yeah thanks for having him. Anyway with that I'll uh, lead us in prayer and then we'll get stuck into this wonderful part of God's word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word the scriptures. Please Father now help us to concentrate, to delight and to tremble at your word, uh, to take it to heart and to be made more like Jesus in accordance with your will. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, I just want to see if I've got the power to do this. Oh, uh, Mr. Dunbier, I have no slides. <laughs> it's all right, he'll work that out. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus, we know, or I hope we know, that prayer is an amazing privilege. Our God uh, is our loving Heavenly Father who delights to give good gifts to his children. And he's also the all-powerful Lord who is absolutely able to answer prayers and he does so in accordance with his will. And yet I suspect that many of us will know, perhaps even from experience, that prayer can at times, or if you're young, eventually at times in the future, it will prove difficult. It can be an area in our Christian lives in which we feel deficient, sometimes despondent or even defeated. It always strikes me as fascinating that in Luke chapter 11, even the disciples who being Jews traditionally practiced morning and evening prayer and had been close enough to Jesus to witness him praying, even then they were compelled to say to him, Lord, teach us to pray. So if prayer is sometimes or even often something you struggle with, then you're in good company, even as it happens with the disciples. So I'm pleased to say that in his word for us this morning, our God, through his gracious dealings with King David, will give us a powerful and compelling reason for the activity of regular prayer and also a helpful reminder of why prayer is something that makes sense for us as followers of Jesus. It's my hope that in light of what we learn from God's word to us today, even if only to a small degree, that for you and I, our prayer lives can't help but be revitalised. Now, in case you weren't here last week, or you're sort of, you know, new or newish, and if you are new or newish, please come and hang out afterwards and newish. But in case you weren't here, uh, 
if I'm not mistaken, James Squire would have been here. Uh, he's another one where we're training in lay preaching, and he gave us, I suspect, a brilliant explanation of God's great revelation to David, but also helpfully enabled us to see it in light of God's big picture plan, promise plan of salvation. And so here, to get you up to speed, is the Ben Pakula super condensed summary version of that all in visual form. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was a good world. The pinnacle of his creation is humanity, Adam and Eve. But it didn't take long for humanity to say, no thanks God, we'll decide what's good and evil, not you. And that terrible rebellion against God uh, is called the fall and it results in the curse of a decaying and fallen world uh, in which death is the constant. But God is a loving God and so he chose uh, a man named Abram, later Abraham, and instead of cursing, he said, I will give you blessing. And he made this tremendous revelation to Abraham, his promised plan of salvation. Uh, the first part of which Abraham would have offspring in the singular, a seed, but which of course would also be understood to be a, a great nation of people, uh, that those people would need somewhere to live and so they'd have a wonderful land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the land of Israel, and that somehow through this process, uh, blessing to all the families of the earth, blessings for all humanity would be the result. Now, that uh, descendants of Abraham, that seed, does turn into a great nation, the nation of Israel, but uh, a bunch of dramatic things happen and they find themselves in Egypt for 400 years, wherein they are enslaved and mistreated. And uh, God, being gracious to his people, decides to rescue them, to redeem them from the land of slavery. And so that's when we get what really I call the gospel of the Old Testament, the Exodus event. You've got God intervening, releasing people from slavery and making them his people. After that, a whole bunch of stuff happens. Joshua judges Ruth and Israel decide they want a king. They get a guy named Saul. He's a bit of a dud. God says, no, he's the one I choose. His name David. Uh, through a whole lot of sort of up and down and rising and falling and battling, David eventually becomes the king over a united Israel and he lives in, I think James called it a sweet palace made for him by uh, Hiram, king of Tyre. And as, as David is there in his sweet big palace, he looks around and he goes, you know, God's living in a little tent, literally a bunch of curtains, David says in the first half of uh, uh, 2 Samuel 7. Whereas I live in this huge, awesome palace, I reckon I need to build for God a house. Because remember, God makes his name known with the Ark of the Covenant and a little bit of curtain. That, that, that's it. And David's got to be, I've got to do something about this. But it says he's thinking about that, about uh, building this uh, big house for God, that God comes to David via the prophet Nathan and he says to him, and this has got to be the worst paraphrase I've ever done in my life, uh, David, I don't need a temple, I'm going to get one later under Solomon. But while we're on the subject, Dave, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to do a big Uno reverse here. You're going to get a house instead of me. And of course, the word house has two meanings, like a house is the brick building I live in. But my son it comes from the house of Pakula. It can be a dynasty, a, a family line. And so David's going to have a family line and a descendant of David will rule on your throne over my kingdom forever. Now, after that extraordinary revelation, we could just get on with the story of the life of King David and the history of Israel as we continue to go through to Samuel. But the writer slash compiler of 2 Samuel, very thankfully, saw fit to include David's 
prayerful response to this extraordinary news. David's prayer, which really is what we're looking at today, it's a prayer. David's prayer gives us great insight into the character and work of God at this most significant point of his revelation, as well as showing you and I the reason why prayer especially makes sense for children of the promise, why prayer especially makes sense for God's people. And so we go through it together this morning. The first thing David's prayer reminds us of is that our God is the God of promise. You might not have thought of this before, but to have faith in God, what does it actually mean? Well, it actually means it's in fact to have faith in what he has promised. Our passage starts with the words, then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Now, if you've got a paper Bible and you can see the very first verse of chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 1, if it's NIV, it won't say this, say it has the word dwell, but it's literally the same word in the original language. David literally sat in his magnificent palace. That's where he sat. But now he sits in something visually far less impressive, a little tent with a box in it but which is, of course, the most impressive place in the universe for anyone who has eyes to see. David has heard the plan of God. He's no longer the king in the palace. He's the servant sitting in the little tent, but in the presence of the Lord, Yahweh. And so it's there that he continues his prayer from verse 18. And he said, who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? As if this was not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you've also spoken about the future of the house of your servant and this decree sovereign lord is for all humanity i know if you've got an niv 11 it says it's for a mere human uh, but thankfully it footnoted the correct translation which is for all humanity i'm not going to go in as to why that's the case if you want to know about the technicalities come and see me after but it is definitely for all humanity you see just like when god's promise was beginning to be revealed when it was sort of revealed to abraham Abraham knew it was for the purpose eventually of giving blessing to all the families of the earth. And so now David realises, and I think I'm going to magically put him in here, David realises that the special singular offspring of Abraham, who would now be a king in David's line, would also be given by God as a means of blessing all humanity. It's the same single promised plan of which David and his family have now become an integral part. And so David is humbled and he just can't help but respond in praise of God's great promise. So verse 20, what more can David say to you? Metaphorically, I'm speechless, which of course he's not because he keeps talking and he writes hundreds of Psalms, but it's the metaphorical, well, what can I say to you? For you know your king, Sorry, <clears throat> for you know your servant, slave, sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word, according to your will, you've done this great thing and made it known to your servant, how great you are, sovereign Lord, not me, king in my big sweet palace, how great you are, sovereign Lord, there is no one like you, there is no God but you, as we have seen with our own eyes, oops, as we have heard with our own ears. We have a, uh, something of a, a preoccupation with really big, fantastic visual signs and manifestations of the power of God, like of the stuff in the Exodus. 
But David, in the presence of God, knows it's actually what we've heard with God is. We saw no image of him on Sinai. We heard his word. That is the thing that has pushed David to this extraordinary praise. And so God's promise, now being revealed in greater detail to David than it was to Abraham, results in this humbled servant giving praise to God. And notice praise of God is, and this is actually far more often the case than not, praise of God is praise about God. David moves to the third person. It's like, it's me, and then suddenly it's we, as we have heard with our own ears. You see, God doesn't actually need to hear how good he is. He kind of knows, being all-knowing. It's speaking of his great deeds in the hearing of others that brings him glory. Now, of course, it's absolutely right and fitting that the individual gives direct praise to God. Praise the Lord, O my soul, David writes, uh, Psalm 103. But even then, it's designed to be sung in the hearing of others. God's name can't be any more holy than it is. And yet we rightly pray, as we did at the beginning, that God's name would be hallowed, that is, made holy, which happens as people see our good deeds and hear our praising testimonies of God and ideally turn and give glory to our Heavenly Father. My wife loves cooking and she does a tremendous job at it. And I tell her that, and I'm very thankful. This is wonderful, sweetheart. Thank you so much. And and that counts for something. But if I really want to bring her glory for her cooking, it's when I tell everybody else in her hearing that she knows how You see how that works? We've got this constant sort of tendency towards thinking that praise of God is shut out everybody else, and it's only somehow in song, and it's just me and God, and that's this great experiential thing that I need to be doing, and I'm praising God when I'm doing... Well, that's not actually what the Bible envisages. It envisages speaking to others for his glory and honour, just like David here moves to the third person. Here in our passage, David humbles himself and he praises God, not for cooking, but for God's incredible promise, singular, in which David's family line would now be instrumental and through which blessing would eventually be brought to all humanity. But it's not only God's promise that drives David to prayer, it's also the fact that this promise ensures that God's work of redemption will be made effective forever. This promise ensures that God's work of redemption will be made effective forever. Why do I say that? Well, continue with me from verse 23. David now reflects on the people of God. Verse 23, "...and who is like your people Israel?" The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed, repetition there, from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever and you, Lord, have become their God. In the Exodus event, God was redeeming, that is, purchasing out of slavery a people to be his very own treasured possession. And now he has promised Israel that a king would rule over them forever. So 
you do the math, right? A king does not exist without a kingdom. So if God has promised that there will be a king forever on the throne of David, well, then it follows that God will forever have a people of his very own. Those he has redeemed are those he has established as his people forever. If you're redeemed by God, if you're one of God's people, then you're in a group that will never cease to exist. The people group we call Israel has never and will never cease to exist. Hard to find an Edomite or an Amalekite, but not so hard to find an Israelite. And so it is with God's church. God's church, made up now of Jew and Gentile, will never cease to exist. No communist or fascist dictatorship, no Islamic terrorist organisation, no materialistic secular Western culture filled with its values of selfism and selfishness. No matter how determined and powerful these things and forces may be, they will never be able to rid the earth of God's church. God himself has redeemed a people for his very own. In David's day, by the powerful works of the Exodus, in our day, of course, by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he has established his people to be his own forever. And he's done that by ensuring that there is always a king ruling in the line of David. Now, in case you're new to the Bible or the things of God, I certainly don't know everyone here. Uh, maybe you might, might not yet call yourself a, a Christian. Well, of course, it's my great joy and, frankly, my duty to tell you that there is right now a king sitting on the throne of David, ruling over the people of God. And this king, this particular one, will never die. For he was raised from dead in order to claim that throne. And so his reign will never end. It's an eternal reign. His name, of course, is Jesus. And God does not invite you. God commands you to join his eternal kingdom. The way, of course, you do that is by turning from living under your own rule to living under his rule. Those who do that receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of life everlasting. There's even something of a new citizenship ceremony for those who come into God's kingdom. We call it baptism. Repent and be baptised for the forgiveness of your sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the deposit that guarantees everlasting life in the presence of God. If you want to know more about that, Make sure you actually do scan that QR code thing and fill out the connect form and say, I want to find, about, find out about coming into the kingdom of Jesus. The final part of David's prayer is where we get the prayer of the prayer. Now, I've worked out that that's a saying that I thought was popular, but apparently is not. And it might be that I've heard it from old people and it's now out of use. The Put up your hand. Have you ever heard that saying, the prayer of the prayer? Yeah, this has been confirmed. No one knows, all right. So we need to bring this, we need to bring this one back into common usage. I'll, I'll tell you why we've got that saying. Prayer is talking to God, yeah? That's true generally. It's right that we teach people that. Specifically, though, 
It's a bit more narrow. You see, in the Bible, prayer is distinct from thanksgiving, which is distinct from confessing, which is distinct from praising. Yet all these things can and rightly do involve talking to God. So what's different about talking to God with thanksgiving as opposed to talking about to, to, to God with prayer? Well, prayer is actually asking God for something. It's the, God, please do this, or, or give me this, please. Please do this. That's as opposed to, thank you for giving me that. Well, that will be thanksgiving. Do you see the difference, right? Prayer is speaking to God. But the prayer of the prayer is what you're actually asking. And the final part of David's prayer is where we get the prayer of the prayer. And strangely, what David asks God to do is what he already knows God will do. To put it another way, David's prayer, in essence, is an expression of assent to God's promise. That's what he's asking. It's therefore an expression of assent. Uh, Stick with me, verse 25, and now, Lord God, here it comes, here's the prayer of the prayer, and now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. It is almost like saying, let your kingdom come. And your will be done on earth as it is. Let that happen so that your name will be hallowed. People will revere you as holy. You see, if God has promised oops, that through the line of David, he'd rule by his chosen king over his redeemed people forever, then there is zero possibility of that not happening. It is only ever always 100% certain that God's word will come to pass. Which, of course, it now has in the resurrection of Jesus, the great son of David. And yet David's actual prayer is that God would do, as he certainly will do. My prayer is that, God, you will do exactly what I know you're going to do. I suspect we don't think of prayer like this nearly often enough. But on the basis of God's word to us here, we absolutely must conclude that prayer is, in part at least, an expression of joyful trust in the sure promise of God. It's also the natural response to what God has revealed about his plan of salvation. And I use that word natural a little bit advisedly. You see, one of the reasons prayer can be difficult, one of the reasons we can find ourselves slumped every now and then with prayer, is because at one level it is an unnatural thing, isn't it? You see, my old sinful heart still has a good tug and it says, I am in control. I decide what's right and wrong. That, that's what sin is. Prayer, by its very definition can't help but insist, no, I am not in control. God is the one who is in control. It's that for, for that reason that prayer can be unnatural. But David coming ear to ear, <laughs> rather than face to face, ear to ear, with, ear to mouth, with God's amazing revelation, drives him 
naturally to prayer. So verse 27, Lord Almighty God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So, therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God, your covenant is trustworthy. You've promised these good things to your servant. Now, be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. It's basically emphasising the same request through repetition. God, do as you have promised, but the reason I'm doing that is precisely because you've promised. You want to get better at prayer, keep coming face to face with the revelation of God. Bible reading and prayer actually go hand in hand, people. David saying, I'm expressing assent to your promised plan of salvation, basically because it's right in my ears at the moment. Now, of course, in David's day, God's plan was still in the, 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 uh, the process of coming to fruition. David would grow old and he would die. We saw that last week in the first half. And someone from his bloodline in each successive generation would take over his throne. And this would be the system, apparently, for all eternity. And so David reasoned that eventually one of his descendants would somehow not see decay, that he would be raised from the dead in order to rule over an eternal kingdom. That is about the most that David possibly could have worked out. But I doubt that David could have imagined that that same descendant would also quite literally not only build the house for God, but be the house for God. For in Jesus, we're told in the New Testament, all the fullness of deity, that is all the, the stuff of God, all that God is, in Jesus that lives in bodily form. And Jesus affirmed it. He points to himself when he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. The great son of David, who was raised from the dead to prove he's the one chosen by God to rule over God's people, also, would you believe, turned out to be the true dwelling place, the true temple of God, the one place where God chose for the dwelling of his great name. Those who come into the kingdom of Jesus are so united with him that we can now be said to dwell right now in the presence of God, raised up with Jesus and seated at God's right hand. No matter how difficult, depressed, despondent, defeated you may be when it comes to your prayer life, the reality remains that you, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, are in the house of God. You dwell there now. You are raised with him now. God is ever-present you can literally pray anytime, anywhere. In David's day, the promised plan of God was still being worked out. In our day, it has been fulfilled. And that means we've got even more reason to assent to God's promise in prayer, even than David did. When Jesus taught his followers how to pray, 
What he gave us, the Lord's Prayer, was a means by which no matter how defeated and despondent we might be, we can actually always express our assent to God's promised plan of salvation. As a matter of fact, when you're despondent or defeated in your prayer life, it actually makes even more sense to consider how Jesus taught us to pray. It's actually a very low bar. The Lord's Prayer occurs twice in the Gospels. In Matthew 6, it's actually a model of how to pray. Jesus taught them how they should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, etc. And that's really important because throughout the ages, a number of Christians have foolishly assumed that it's actually exactly what to pray and that if you pray it 10, 20, 30 times, you somehow gain great merit and favour with God. Say the Lord's Prayer 20 times, right? And the reason that's absolutely ridiculous is in the context of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has just said, don't go on babbling like the pagans who think they'll be heard because of their many words. And so what do Christians do? Let's say this over and over, right? That's a problem. It's a model. It's how to pray. And how to pray involves showing assent to what you already know God's going to do. God, let your kingdom come. Anyone ever a real, real, real pinch, difficulty, situation that makes you stress, something that you really don't look forward to, something horrible happened, hopefully you pray, Jesus, please return now. Anyone ever done that as a Christian? Lord, I want you to come back now. The people is just, I don't think there's any of them here. We've got a bunch of year 12s who've just done their HSC. I reckon a couple of times through that, they would have prayed, you know, let it happen now. However... In Luke 11, which is the other occurrence of the Lord's Prayer, it is, would you believe, what to say. Here's what to say, says Jesus. And that can be really helpful as well. I'm so stuffed, I don't know what to pray. Jesus says, here's what to say, our Father in heaven. And its content is actually as simple as it is theologically rich. So by way of implication, let me just give you a little refresher on stuff you might have known but might not have known about the prayer by which we, for the most part, give our assent to what God is already going to do. It begins, our Father in heaven. We easily forget that the craziest word there is Father. You can only ever know God as Father because he's given you the tremendous gift of adoption by the blood of Jesus into his family. That you can call him Father is extraordinary. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed means to be made holy. That's what we really want. Typically, I don't think of this. It's God please give me a parking spot when I show up at the shops. It's like, God, I really want everyone to know how awesome and magnificent you are. I want them to revere you, your nature, your character, that's your name. That's what I really want. Ah, isn't that a kick in the prayer life? Try it. Second, here's the bit where we ask God to do what's definitely going to happen. Your kingdom come, which is, your will be done on earth as it currently is in heaven, which is, tomorrow's bread arrived today. You want to ask me about the tomorrow's bread thing, that's literally what it says, our translations go. It's, your kingdom come, that's what we want. What does that mean? It means we want your will to be done on earth as in heaven. We want to give, have today's bread, uh, tomorrow's bread given to us today. We want Jesus to return now. Now that's going to happen. There's no question that God's kingdom's going to come. But Jesus says that's the kind of thing you ask for. It's actually an expression of assent to the plan of our heavenly Father. Now, once you know that, it would make sense to show your readiness for this kingdom. And I know I've stuffed the order around here, it's deliberate, just bear with me. We 
we know that God's kingdom is perfect, it's holy and it's eternal, so we don't want to get sucked into to temptation which can lead us into evil. We, we want to be delivered from those things. We want to be led not into temptation so that we can be delivered from evil. You see, temptation in itself is nicely wrong. Jesus was tempted. But he never did any evil. You and I, when we are tempted, can quite easily do evil. And so we say, Lord, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. We want to be sinful. The prayer of the prayer is actually the thing that you ask for is forgiveness, but it's more than forgiveness. It's forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. God has and will, of course, forgive our sins. We confess our sins. We know that God's faithful and just. He'll forgive us because of the, the blood of Jesus that pays for all sin. But really we're saying, God, let me not be a hypocrite. You see, if I really want the forgiveness of my sins, which I do because I'm a Christian, then it will make sense that I would so value forgiveness that that would be seen in my life. How could I say, God, I want your forgiveness, but I'm going to be a real jerk to other people and not give them forgiveness? That's stupid. As a matter of fact, this is the one part of the prayer that Jesus comments on to explain it right afterwards, right? Because if you don't forgive them, then well, neither your heavenly Father will forgive you, right? It's, Lord, make me not a hypocrite. You heard the old saying, church is filled with hypocrites? You ever heard people say that? You know the right response to it, don't you? This is, no, we're not filled with hypocrites. We've still got room for more. Come and join us. Right? If anyone says it, you tell them that. It's actually a way of hallowing God's name as well. It's a way of not taking the Lord's name in vain. Wait a minute, Ben, what are you talking about? Lord's name in vain? That's, that's Ten Commandments. What do you mean hallowed? That's earlier in the Lord's Prayer. Hear me out, people. Uh, I said this at night church last week and it's going to stick, so here we go. There's a great school in Whoop Whoop and it's called St Benny's because I just made it up. And, uh, and I go to St Benny's school in Whoop Whoop and so because I go to that school, I've got a uniform and the uniform has emblazoned on the front St Benny's Whoop Whoop, right? I get out of school for the afternoon, I see an old lady and I kick her, I see a bus and I throw an egg at it and I smash the window and I see a shop and I go in there and I steal all the stuff and punch the guy on the way out, right? I'm the biggest jerk that has ever lived in Whoop Whoop. And of course I get discovered and the next day the principal calls me into the office and the principal, apart from expelling me or bashing me on the head, says, you gave our school a bad name. Because everyone knows I go to St Ben's whoop whoop, it's written on my thing and I, I'm doing these horrible things. See how that works? We always do this stupid thing of minimising the Ten Commandments. We're just like Pharisees. We think when we say Jesus Christ as a swear word or oh my God as, as some expression, that that's taking the Lord's name in vain. It is and I hate it when people do that. I, it's a pet hate of mine. I, I, sometimes even a TV show, if you've got, oh my God, I can't watch it. I can watch violence, no problem, but when people do that... Every... Anyway, would you say that of someone's mum, you know? Put your mum's your name, Jill. Oh, Jill! I mean, how disrespectful that be? For... Oh, no, I said this at night church and someone said, actually, I'd find it kind of funny. But you get the idea, right? Why do you speak of God? No, you can't speak like that of God. If you've got to... someone does that, correct them. Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour. He's not a swear word. But that's the tiniest little bit. That's like 1% of taking the Lord's name in vain. There's a whole lot more. It's when I act like a jerk and people know that I know the true and living God, that's taking the name of the Lord, his reputation, and trashing it 
by the way I behave. And I don't want that. I want God's name to be hallowed. That's why I must forgive others as they sin against me, because my God is a God who forgives. I will uphold and magnify his name by the way that I forgive other people. See how that works? Isn't it sad that we can so pharisaically minimise the commands of God, which is the very problem that Jesus smashed the Pharisees for in the New Testament? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Keep praying that you'll be the kind of person that makes his name hallowed, especially by forgiving others when they sin against you, because that's the kind of thing that God does for us. You'd think that to conclude this, I'd be really right to, to pray the Lord's Prayer. But I'm not going to. We've already done it once and you can do it in your own time and if you're having a real struggle with your prayer life, just give it a go throughout the week this week. Let me pray to conclude our time looking at God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your amazing promised plan of salvation that included a great son of David who currently rules on your throne and will rule forever. Father, we thank you that we see this revelation complete in the death, resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus and that as your children, we know that we will live under his rule for all eternity. Heavenly Father, we want to express our assent to this amazing promise plan. We want your kingdom to, to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that in the here and now, we'd be delivered from temptation and evil, that we'd reflect your great name by forgiving those who sin against us as indeed you have forgiven us. Heavenly Father, we ask for, for those of us for whom prayer is currently a struggle, uh, that by the power of your Spirit at work within us, you'd enable us throughout the week to grow in our ability and our joy at assenting to your promised plan through prayer. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.